What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today, our guest is author, researcher of social psychology, and returning guest, Margie Kerr. So if you missed it, make sure you go back and check the other episode that I did with Margie, where we talked about her book, Scream. All right. This book is amazing. And we talked about it. And it's one where she she discusses the psychology of fear, right? Why do we watch horror movies? Why do we like them? Why do we like going on scary rides and all that? So check out that episode if you haven't yet. But today we're chatting about another one of her books, which is a one word title, and it's called Ouch. All right. She co-authored this book, but aside from studying fear, she studies pain. So I, I absolutely love this book. And as I was reading it, I was telling her, I was like, I wish I could take your book and give it to everybody who came into the treatment center I was working at, because as many of you know, I'm a recovering opioid addict. And in this book, Ouch, you know, it's all about pain, but it also talks about how we perceive pain, how we research pain, how we manage pain and, you know, what works and what doesn't and where the science is going. But there's also a lot that we discuss in this episode uh, from different parts of the book about when people turn to pain for pleasure and why we avoid pain and how we teach kids about pain, and how we become more resilient towards pain, whether it's physical or emotional. So I absolutely love talking with Margie once again. This is not only a great educational and entertaining book, but it's it's such an important book since, you know, the the opioid epidemic has been raging for, you know, nearly two decades. And we still don't have a solution for pain management without throwing pills at people. So it's such an important book. So make sure you head down to the description. Make sure you uh, are following Margie over on social media and grab a copy of this book, Ouch. All right. And like I said, if you would like, after this episode, go back and check out the other episode I did with Margie about her book, Scream, where we discuss the psychology of fear. All right. But yeah, before we get started, down in the description below, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter as well, at The Rewired Soul, so you don't miss any updates, new episodes, projects I'm working on. I've been writing a lot. Uh, for any of you who watched the, the Dave Chappelle stand-up, I wrote a piece over on my Substack about that and some of the backlash. And a lot of people have been enjoying it and reading it. So if you want to check that out, uh, I post it all over my social media. And exciting news before we get started. I just had my first op-ed published in Newsweek. Yeah, so like I told all of you, I've been focusing on my writing some more. So make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul because I'm writing all over the place, baby. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Margie Kerr about her book, Ouch. All right. Hello, Margie. How are you doing today? Hello. I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for coming on again. You were recently on and I hope, I, well, I actually, I know a lot of people listen to it where you talked about your previous book, but today we're talking about your new book that you co-authored called Ouch. So for those who don't know, can you talk a little bit about why why you were inspired to write this book or even like you've been researching this for a while so yeah. give us a little background like what what piqued your interest sure so in researching for my first book scream which was a focus on fear um by the end of it and also after which at the end i also met greg siegel my colleague at university of pittsburgh he's a cognitive neuroscientist and he was walking me through a lot of the different lab protocols that they have for testing threat response, you know, testing uh, stress reactivity uh, in controlled settings in the lab. And uh, I realized that, well, I mean, it wasn't like I was discovering this is this, you know, well known. I connected the dots mm -hmm. uh, to see that most of the fear testing uh, utilizes some some aversive stimuli, so pain, mm -hmm. um, to basically encode a fear. So during, and this is a lab study, so this isn't traumatizing anyone. It's doing things like <laughs> yeah. giving a, 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 a uncomfortable, you know, painful shock when looking at an image of something to do some fear conditioning. And then they, they reverse the fear conditioning. So people are okay. Um, yeah. But I, I did, you know, connect those thoughts between 
fear and pain and thought, well, you know, of course, fear and pain are not the same thing. Um, and that really made me want to learn more about pain. Another state that we think of as, as very negative as uh, mm -hmm. something to avoid and seeing as how I just seem to love trying to find the upside of some of these <laughs> negative things I, I wanted to think about and research um, how pain works for us, you know, and yeah. while also recognizing that it is the worst, <laughs> that pain absolutely is, you know, among the um, most difficult things, which gets into how we define pain, but that's yeah. a, a whole chapter. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but really what, what took me down this path is uh, trying to understand how these negative words like fear and pain, um, how they can actually work for us and how we can, you know, understand that and in turn have a better relationship with our body and, and mm -hmm. make them work for us instead of, um, you know, always being a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was emailing you throughout the book as I was reading, I'm like, this is so good. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of my audience and, and as you're aware, like, so I'm a recovering opioid addict. That was like my thing. And, you know, when I got sober and I started researching like just addiction and everything, you know, I, I started realizing a lot of what you talk about in the book is, you know, uh, more, more of our relationship to pain, right. Yeah. And how averse we mm -hmm. are to pain and all these other things. And, you know, something we'll get into, you know, in a minute, but, you know, especially with the opioid epidemic and people struggling with chronic pain, like mm -hmm. it's, it's a difficult subject, but your book had just like so much research and just each chapter was just phenomenal. So let's, let's start from the beginning, Margie. Well, yeah. <laughs> a simplified beginning. How, like you, you spend, you spend a decent chunk of time. Like how do, how do you define pain? Right. Are we talking physical, right. emotional? What what is this thing going on? Yeah. And so, you know, like fear, pain is difficult to to define or operationalize uh, very in a very precise way, because ultimately pain is whatever the person experiencing it says it is. Um, but of course, doctors really want and increasingly insurance companies want <laughs> to be able to have this objective um, valid, reliable measure of pain in order to quantify it, to, to know, um, how much money somebody should be paid or if they're actually yeah. really disabled. Um, and so because the biomedical model has dominated in the U S, um, the doctors, you know, the emerging medical profession wanted to understand pain, wanted to define pain in strictly uh, physiological uh, manner. So saying, okay, pain is activation of what are called the nociceptors. The nociception is the, um, uh, the neurons in our uh, nervous system that are, are specific to any, uh, anything that damages our tissue, bone, mm. muscle, um, but there are these special sensors that respond to that. And you can measure that, you can see the activity, um, but you can't, you still can't quantify it, you know, even though, mm. and, and Greg pointed this out while I had, uh, uh, on a EEG cap, you know, you can observe the, the, the signals, the signatures of pain in the brain, but that still doesn't tell you how much suffering I might be yeah. feeling, or if I'm even defining that experience as pain. So that definition of trying to just stick it to what you can see, what you can measure, um, you know, just, just, just leaves out really a majority of what people would describe as painful experience. It's such a narrow focus. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually just in the past five years, the uh, International Association of Pain Research, oh, I'm getting the acronym wrong, um, but <laughs> it's basically the, you know, the panel of experts who study pain um, adopted a much more broad definition, which acknowledges that pain actually is what the person experiencing it says it is, that we can't that yes, you can you can find some of these signatures. You can, um, you know, talk about what's happening in the body, but the experience of pain and is is a personal experience. It's an emotional experience. So that means that it's going to be 
uh, informed by context, by mm -hmm. motivation, by the people you're with, um, by the culture you were raised in, how you were raised to mm. understand pain, um, how you were raised to express pain. All of that is going to go into building the experience of it. So thankfully, there is this more broad, um, more more accurate definition, which is, it's funny that the more accurate definition is actually broader, but I think that's true of a lot <laughs> of things. Um, so, and it, it does, um, give more, but not, not enough. In my opinion, it gives more voice to people struggling with chronic pain conditions, mm -hmm. but, uh, there's still a lot of growth that needs to happen there. Uh, and that is also a big cultural shift in, in understanding, uh, chronic pain and, and treating it as mm -hmm. legitimate pain, um, as it, as it is. So, yeah. But when we think about, you know, what I got really into and, and super fascinated with is just how our nervous system works and how it is reporting on pain signals and how it's, you know, distinguishing pain from just a tickle sensation or vibration mm. and that we've got all of these amazing sensors in our body that, you know, are specific to uh, to temperature and chemicals and uh, to mechanical pressure like you know, hitting your thumb with a hammer um, to, to scraping when your, your skin scrapes across something. So all of these sensors are specific to these different types of, of ways that our, our body can be damaged. But what was super interesting and one of my favorite findings, and, uh, and it just really kind of when you start thinking about it, hopefully for everybody else, it'll kind of blow your mind. But yeah. we can only experience and sense the pain that we have receptors uh, to, to sense it. So for example, um, radiation, uh, a sunburn, we don't feel the pain of the actual radiation until it starts killing our cells. And we have sensors that are specific to the chemicals that are released when a cell, um, you know, dies. So we, that's when we start experiencing the pain, mm. but with x-rays, with, uh, radiation, we have no sensors. And so we don't feel it. And I think it's pretty, interesting to think about all of the things that we can't sense because we don't have the receptors to to play it you know it's kind of like having a media file but not the right player yeah um to play it yeah yeah it's it's i and i i hope i hope everybody <laughs> don't see how like complicated and you know subjective some of this can be too because you know uh just you know, with, with, you know, chronic pain patients and the opioid epidemic and all that. And like, I, I don't know, like I've talked with so many different authors on this podcast about, you know, all these like, con like kind of controversial subjects, but like, I think pain is definitely one of them. Like, I don't know if like during your research, you like got into this realm, but for example, I remember just, you know, even doing like uh, YouTube videos about, you know, opioid addiction and some of the science behind it and, you know, and statistics, right? Like the chronic pain community mm -hmm. would come at me just like, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But, right. but because of, you know, like, you know, it's 2021 and our best technology is like, Hey, it's still pretty subjective person to person. Like, I, I think, you know, we, you know, just all of us, we could start, you know, looking at these, uh, problems we have in a better way, whether it's, you know, the opioid crisis or people dealing with chronic pain or whatever, because, you know, uh, when I first got sober, like I wanted to blame, you know, the doctors or, you know, uh, my, you know, my own addiction. And then, you know, you look at the pharmaceutical companies, and all these other things, but, you know, for example, like, like you were talking about how we were raised and everything like that. I had mm -hmm. the type of dad who had me walk it off, like no matter what it was, yeah. I had an extremely high pain tolerance. Right. So even when I got hooked on pain medications, like I was never in pain, Right. but, but I could still walk into any doctor's office, any emergency room, doesn't matter how many thousands or millions of dollars of equipment they have. And when they asked me my pain, I could say, yeah, it's an eight, it's a nine, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. And, and that's very difficult because you have people like me who are drug seeking. You have other people who are, uh, you know, experiencing that chronic pain. So I, I don't know you, you know, the book, the book just, you know, came out. I'm sure you've been researching this for quite some time now, mm -hmm. but like, is anything like moving in the direction? Because I guess, I guess one of my, my main question is like, 
part of part of our healthcare system is to get people in and out as quick as possible. So okay. I don't even know if there is technology available, but like, you know, doctors in emergency rooms are not using it. You know what I mean? But are we making any kind of movement towards like, maybe we could find out if someone's like, you know, seeking drugs or someone who's actually experiencing this pain? Well, I think that the real movement is slowly happening and where it's most critically needed to happen is actually in uh, education for doctors and all healthcare professionals. Mm. We had a bigger section on this in the book and it was cut for space, but um, the medical education that uh, healthcare professionals receive regarding treating pain is just, it's abysmal. They, they don't get anywhere near enough uh, information on it. And it's because pain is primarily considered as a symptom instead of a mm. Uh, something to address and to learn about and to learn how to manage independently. And it, and it needs to be, especially for primary care, emergency room, um, you know, well, really all healthcare professionals, because everybody is going to experience pain. Yeah. So, but so few doctors actually understand um, not just the, the scientific ends, not just the, the drugs and the interactions, but uh, how to talk to a patient about their pain. Um, the the importance of listening to a patient. Um, and it's really, there have been so many studies looking at how doctors perceive patients in pain. And you you see all of the, the stereotypes and biases are still there mm -hmm. and they're still there in a big way. And it's so problematic. So people who come in alone, they're not treated as um, with as much respect as people who come in with family. Um, people of any kind of, um, you know, minority population, LGBTQ, um, you know, it's, it, people will, will get, uh, kind of just not the, the same level of care, but it, for everybody, there's a lack of, of attention and care for, uh, the treatment of pain. And so it's, it's really where the movement, I think mm -hmm. it should be happening for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And then just the continuing education of healthcare professionals too, you know, there's research on pain coming out just fast and furious because <laughs> of the, yeah. the epidemic and, um, and because of the increasing rates of chronic pain and because we're, you know, learning more about chronic pain and what's happening at different levels. So it is tough to keep up with all of the latest findings. And you figured there's you know, millions of practitioners who might not even know that the, the you know, the latest result on the relationship between trying to address something like lower back pain, when mm. opioids are appropriate, when they're not, um, how long-term use of opioids can, you know, lead to worsening of some chronic pain conditions. And, um, and so it's, it's, I, I'm sympathetic to doctors because they have a lot of on their plate, yeah. but um, there's got to be more education and, um, and it's hard because in the U.S. we want to make it a very cut and dry kind of picture mm -hmm. that opioids are now bad and the worst and everybody should, you know, never take them. And um, but of course, there are uh, circumstances where they have and continue to save lives. And there's the reality yeah. that in a lot of developing countries, there are these um, massive shortages of, of um, opioids of, you know, these drugs that can relieve suffering and they get diverted and they get, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, theft can happen. And, and it's really problematic that we in the U S have this abundance and a whole bunch of other countries can't even get yeah. just the, the basics needed for, um, for things like surgeries. Um, so yeah, it yeah. was, it's heart wrenching to hear about surgeries prior to any kind of anesthesia or uh, any kind of um, opioid or, or morphine. It's it's I don't know how they did it. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. But it's 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 really interesting to like like we talk about like the education of doctors. I, I you know I, I I feel like a lot of people don't fully understand like like doctors like they have to know so much. Like I am regularly amazed. Maybe it's just because I'm curious and that's why I read so much. But like when I'm talking with my primary care doctor, I'm like I am surprised at how much you know, right? Yeah. Like like she'll talk to me about all these medications that are completely different, right? Like uh you know like I screwed up my heart and my addiction, and so she's prescribing heart medications, and she very she's very well, well versed on that, and then she could talk to me about you know uh other medications that I need, right. and just I'm like, how do you hold all that in your head? But like my mom. So my mom got sober when I was 20 and she's actually a psychologist and she's uh, been a clinical director at treatment centers and something she 
uh, was doing in California for a while was going around and training doctors and nurses about pain, about signs of addiction and everything like that. And I would hear their stories and, and even I was surprised, like, wow, they, they really don't know a lot of this stuff, you know? And so, yeah. And it's something I've actually been talking with a lot of authors about, like, do you think it starts like, you know, with the, the, the people up there or does it start with us? Right. So in this context, it's the doctors or, or with us and, Here's, here's something I've been wanting to ask you because it's, it's in the book. And I originally heard the statistic just about, um, just pain, like, uh, in America. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So I remember just reading somewhere in, in some book, it was like four or five years ago, but like when it comes to like opioids, we prescribe like I don't, I don't know. It was some crazy number, like way over 50%. Like I think it was 60, 70, 80%, something crazy. Right. Yeah. And as somebody who tries to be logical, I sit back and I'm like, okay, so why is this? Are we, are we going to say that Americans are in more pain than any other country? You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, yeah, if you could, if you can clear that up for me, I don't know what the data is like now, do we still prescribe it more? And if so, if we're still just like the world leader, in prescribing pain meds, what's yeah. going on? Are we, for lack of better words, a bunch of wussies? But yeah, we're <laughs> definitely <laughs> among the world leaders. Um, and it's not because we're all just in more pain compared to everybody else. Um, and I think that that is really clearly kind of highlighted when looking back through history. And we have a section in the book uh, on the, the America's first opioid epidemic. And it it underscores how you know, consumption and then addiction um, are directly tied to trade and marketing and mm -hmm. and money. Um, and I think this is another really important point for doctors to understand. And I think they're increasingly doing that, that, you know, they may have a patient who shows up in their room, but this is such a bigger problem with um, forces so much bigger than any one individual. You know, you look at the Sattler case and they, and yeah. um, Oxycontin and what has happened. And I'm so, I'm glad that they have been held accountable, but I agree that, you know, they should be even more accountable. Mm -hmm. um, but our use is directly tied to advertisement for the use and the, the, you know, recruiting doctors to um, prescribe it, you know, doctors are rather pharma, um, Big Pharma advertises because it works. Yeah. Uh, we're, we are, it's the U.S. and New Zealand are the only countries to allow direct-to-consumer advertising of drugs. Uh, in other countries, you you don't see the commercials that we do. You don't get the, the images of the balancing ball and recommendation to talk to your doctor about feeling yeah. sad. Like, that doesn't exist in other countries and it does here. And, you know, it's, it's all been passed through on the message of patient empowerment, but um, they're not doing it for patient empowerment. They're clearly doing it to sell drugs and, yeah. and they do it because it works. And, um, and it is difficult often to balance that line of wanting to get the awareness out that there is a drug that could be helpful because I am a, a believer that modern medicine has been, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a godsend. But um, so you do want people to to talk to their doctor, but you don't want people to, you know, be overprescribed. And that's where doctors really, you know, the, just between the, the pill mills and um, the pushing of it by the big pharma companies, it's unfortunate. Um, that then individuals and families and communities are are paying the consequences for it. Yeah. So so it's it's not that we're in more pain. Um, it's that you know we have uh, uh, I guess better marketing campaigns in the U.S. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was I was kind of blown away. I, I you know it was a while back when I first you know when I got sober and was trying to understand you know addiction and why you know we have this crisis uh, you know in America like addiction happens everywhere right. But it's like we we have this very specific one and there's you know there's all sorts of stuff. But when I when I heard about like the the marketing to people right because yeah and i started seeing it everywhere just you know uh now i have like you know netflix and i pay like a dollar extra on hulu to not have ads so i don't even remember yeah. if they, they market it but yeah and and yeah th there's like this balance between like consumer awareness and then doctors also not just being like order takers right like like because yeah. the commercials they're always like ask your doctor ask it's your like doctor. it's like no my doctor went to school for like many years 
they should have these recommendations and stuff. Um, but yeah, yeah, like I, you know, I spent almost a decade as an opioid addict and I saw how easy it was to, to get them. Right. Um, yeah. So well, that's like Linda, the, um, my co-author, she mm-hmm. lives in England. She's from the U S but she lives in England and, um, I think it made it into the book, but when she, she cut her hand very badly and she had to go to the emergency Ooh. department and they, they stitched it up, uh, and just sent her home with some paracetamol. And her expectation was that she'd be leaving there with a prescription for some pretty heavy duty, um, painkillers. And so yeah. it's, it's at that level too, where, you know, the prescribing practices for different, different surgeries, a lot of dental surgeries in the U S uh, you walk out with a opioid prescription, whereas in the UK, uh, you wouldn't. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot, a lot of different levels. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's nuts too, because I, I was working at a, you know, at a rehab for a while and, you know, I, I remember when I first got sober and I was just like, well, what if a shark like bites my leg off when I need some <laughs> opioids? And, you know, and I go, okay, well, we'll cross that bridge when you get there. But anyways, when I was about two years sober, I got into a head on collision car accident and, you know, mm. fortunately it was very minor injuries. I was just like bumped and bruised, like bad. Right. And, you know, aside from the fact that I told him I couldn't have opioids, they tried giving them to me like four or five times. Yeah. But anyways, I, I took ibuprofen. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, that sold me. <laughs> that sold yeah. me. I'm like, Oh, and in the book, you guys talk about like alternatives, you know, to treating pain, but it, it, it feels like, you know, there's, there's a few possibilities, but we've, we've been conditioned to not only, uh, think that this is like the, like medications are, you know, the, best or even only remedy, but I don't know if you've seen this kind of, as kind of an American thing too, but we're always looking for like this very quick fix, right? Like we love like pop psychology. We love like, you know, these real easy things and, you know, like a pop a pill, get rid of my pain or, you know, just get high because it's not even treating the pain half the time. But (laughs) but yeah, it's that, it's that quick kind of fix. So like, I'm, I'm curious you know, cause you talk about so many alternatives, but they take time. Like, did you find in your research, like, are there any countries that are like, Hey, physical therapy, Hey, yoga, Hey, stretch, you know, and all these other things. Like how, how do they get people to do that instead of asking for, for, for pain meds? Is there anything we could be doing here? Well, there are a lot of other, um, developed countries, especially, you know, when you get into some of the, um, Norwegian areas and mm-hmm. uh, but really throughout Europe countries that have universal health care are more um, what was the study more likely to prescribe and use alternative well what we in the U.S. consider alternative but in those countries are just part of standard care um, things like acupuncture and mm. um, more um, aggressive isn't the right word but um more physical therapy. You know, in the U.S., a lot of physical therapy is basically is defined by what your insurance company will pay for. So, so much of our therapy is defined by our insurance and where Mm -hmm. you have that as a universal right, um, then people feel more open to trying different things because there isn't that fear of like, okay, well, I've got one shot with my insurance company. I want to, you know, make it work. And um, and so in places where it's more normalized to use uh, acupuncture, body work, um, physical therapy, then it's just part of, of normal care. And, and the results are, are, are great, you know, are effective. And, um, and it's not that you can't, what, there's some studies show that, yes, they'll, they'll you know, prescribe uh, an, opio- an opioid uh, post-surgery, but then it will be combined with these uh, other mm-hmm. methods of physical therapy. And so patients just don't end up taking as much um, and they don't uh, feel that they need to take as much. Um, they're yeah. in less pain. And in, in the U.S., it is the the attitude, you know, that we, and because I never want to say that, you know, the U.S., we just take what's easiest. It's it's because we've had a lot of options available to us that we, we start to just expect it and mm. expect that we can avoid painting entirely. And yeah. that's, it's not, you know, it's, we didn't do that out of laziness or anything. It's mm. just oh, the way we adapt is that, oh, we've got these mechanisms now that will take away our pain. So we might as well. And and then the problem becomes that um, we forget that not all pain is avoidable. And we also forget that it's, 
often not as bad as as we remember. You know, mm-hmm. in throughout researching this book, both Linda and I challenged ourselves to really think carefully about when we take ibuprofen or aspirin. And both of us, uh, I cut it back by 75 percent mm. um, because I realized it was like, oh, actually, you know, this minor headache, it, it's fine. It, it's, it's not really that big of a deal and it goes away. Um, and, uh, you know, I feel the, the benefit there, yes, these over the counter, uh, ibuprofen aspirin, um, they're not super dangerous, but they are in large quantities and we do take too many of them. And that does have consequences for, for our body, for our stomachs. And, um, so it's, mm-hmm. it's not just like, well, you can take 800 milligrams of ibuprofen yeah, a day, right. so you might as well. And it yeah. does have consequences for our emotions too. It doesn't just blunt pain. It blunts all of our sensory, um, uh, uh, sensors and, and our just experience mm-hmm. of, of emotions. So I think it's, I like that people can get surprised at how much, um, not not like a challenge of oh how much pain can you stand but yeah. surprised at like oh it actually it doesn't even feel as bad as i thought it did yeah um it feels that feels empowering to me yeah yeah the whole uh you two you, you talked about in the book like you know uh you have a whole chapter on you know kids and why kids need to experience yeah. pain and and you know building resilience and all that and and yeah that's that's very true and like to your point about, you know, uh, just kind of like thinking, you know, like we, we shouldn't feel pain or pain is bad and avoiding pain. You know, I like coming from a mental health background and I kind of look at this like kind of self-help mental health, like, uh, movement, like while it's, you know, very important, I feel like we've also been conditioned aside from physical pain is that we should never have to feel emotional pain, right? Like it's, it's, everything's become like, oh, oh, you're not feeling 1000%. Right. And it took me like one day I just sat there. I'm like, is it a realistic expectation to be happy? all the time like is that is it really realistic and yeah. once i kind of acknowledge that you know i actually just had a evolutionary psychologist uh uh randy nessie on here we we're talking about his book good reasons for bad feelings and oh you know, nice yeah there, there's there's reasons for this and sometimes yeah. you just you just go through it and the same thing with physical pain but yeah um you know you do talk a, a, a lot about you know different like just so many interesting subjects. I love the book. So yeah, one thing you. I wanted to talk with you about, because I have been just waiting to have somebody on here who has discussed self-harm, right? Yeah. In the book. So the other section on self-harm, and I could talk about this for hours, but you talk a bit about like some of the stigma around oh, self-harm. Gosh. Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. And, but then also like there, there are some benefits, especially when we get into like body play and stuff like that, which we'll touch on in a minute. But but yeah, I'm curious about, you know, the stigma around self-harm and how we can kind of balance it because at the same time, it, it's it's like, you know, an unhealthy behavior or a lot of right. the accidents happen yeah. because, you know, so yeah. can you kind of break that down a little bit, the stigma and what's sure. going on? Sure. And it is, you know, it was a tough chapter to write too because of how powerful the stigma is. And I, I appreciate that there is increasing awareness out there, but a lot of people just hear self-harm and think, oh, well, that person is is clearly just, you know, really off the deep end. And they're there. It's they people get scared uh, by it. And mm-hmm. and it's it is scary because the risks are big, you know, especially with the accidents, as you said. Um, but when you understand what's happening physiologically and also just the the meaning that people make of the experience, then it's easier to understand. And it's uh, you see how damaging the stigma can be. Um, for a long time, the um, the psychological, therapeutic, you know, clinical psychologist, there wasn't a lot of room to understand um, self harm as anything but attempted suicide, and mm. they were always di- directly linked. Even in the the name that is used, non suicidal self injury. Yeah. Um. You know, I think we need to revamp that too because. Suicide really often, not always, but it's independent, you know, suicidal ideation, people who think a lot about suicide, but never actually do anything about it. That's different than, you know, than attempting suicide and Mm -hmm. self-harm is the same thing. It is something different. Um, And it's 
in the studies that have been done, and now there's been, you know, there's growing body of research on, on it, um, researchers are seeing how, how it does modulate our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. So mm -hmm. for people who, who may have uh, a lot of anxiety, you know, it can be a way of basically kind of taxing the body to the point that our parasympathetic system has to come in and calm us down. So it's a way of externally trying to, to balance our, our stress by, um, by forcing our body to, to make these chemical changes. Um, so at a physiological level, it is basically trying to, to step in to our automatic nervous system, what our system is supposed to be doing. Um, you know, self-harm can be a way of stepping in to try and, and, uh, and get it to do these things, either mm -hmm. to calm us down or alternatively to, to lift us up. Um, so that's, that's been, um, there's a, a few studies that we, um, that we talk about that have found that, um, and then the other, um, part of it that a lot of people don't understand or want to even take the time to understand is the meaning that people make of it is really yeah. important. You know, people are doing, some people do it because they do like the healing process. They like tending to something, you know, self-harm also becomes then self-care and, you know, taking care of oneself, watching oneself heal can feel, um, can feel good to people. Mm -hmm. Is that healthy? It is a different question. That's, yeah. you know, if we want to understand before we get to the, you know, what is risky, what is problematic. So, so that can feel good to people. There's also the very real endorphin release that happens when, yeah. um, when you do something like cut yourself, you are going to get, uh, some endorphins and that can feel good. So, uh, and there is the fact that some people do like that, the sensation, just the sensation of it. So there's a lot to understand about it and deconstructing the stigma around it is so important, especially for kids, um, you know, who are really struggling with their emotions, who are struggling with, with just how they can feel not, not even happy, but just not so bad. So we yeah. really need to make a space where they can come and talk about it and not feel like they're immediately going to be pathologized and stigmatized and, um, and looked at in a, in, in a negative way. That's the, the opposite. And in the book, we talk about how, you know, researchers and clinicians are also responsible for, um, for reducing the stigma because the words mm -hmm. that are used in these articles still are, um, in my mind, contributing to the stigma using words like mutilation and yeah. um, just very visceral words that are not needed. They're not needed to do anything in the scientific or research realm. Um, they're, they're, you know, I think um, just promoting that um, negative idea. And when we then remove the stigma, it's going to help us focus a lot more on therapeutic uh, solutions. You know, how can we help people who are using this outlet, how can we help them find something else mm -hmm. um, because of the risk of infection and also um, the long-term consequences of scarring or just the, you know, just injury itself? Um, you know, how, how mm -hmm. can we find a, a better way to, to achieve the same result? And uh, what's very cool is, is my colleague, Greg, um, he's done some research on this and found that uh, you don't need the intense kind of nociceptive level sensation to mm -hmm. get some of these physiological changes. Um, a vibration works well. If you uh, get these wearables that you can put over different parts of your body to uh, basically increase activation in the parasympathetic nervous system to um, help our body kind of relax and reset. So, um, you know, learning how we can get the same results without the danger, I think is, yeah. um, is going to help a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely agree. You know, for the, like the first step is we have to have people, you know, willing to talk about it. like right now, like, uh, you know, it's just something just you know, random side rant. Like I've noticed like, you know, there's a lot of like, Hey, you know, destigmatize mental health and mental health awareness. But like, they're talking about like the, the, the upper level stuff, like, you yeah. know, regular old depression and anxiety. anxiety when, right. yeah, yeah, when you start getting down to like the, the other stuff, People yeah. get uncomfortable, you know, they use words like mutilation and, and right. all of that. But, you know, uh, just working, working in, you know, 
mental health care, you know, uh, one of the misconceptions I see from family, which you touch on in the book and you just mentioned was like, like this kind of idea, like, you know, these are suicide attempts, right? right. And it's like right. that, that is, you know, people who are, you know, suicidal with intent, like it is much different than, yeah. you know, cutting, you know, or hiding cuts like in different places. But um, I've always just, maybe it's because I'm in recovery and I just see things through that lens, but I've seen self-harm in a very similar light. And some, I forgot where, you know, I don't remember if I learned it in like meetings or in a book, but they, they said, you know, uh, you know, alcohol or drug use is like to, to either get a feeling, to get rid of a feeling or uh -huh. to have an escape. Right. Yep. yep and yeah. Yep, and I, yep. I see that, I see that with self-harm and, and you guys yep. talk about this in the book, like sometimes someone is very depressed or they're anxious and, you know, or maybe they have those racing thoughts or whatever it is that yeah. we all deal with. And they would rather have that physical pain than the emotional pain or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. But then there's also the, Hey, this gives me some endorphins and stuff. And that's yeah. when I can see it possibly becoming an addictive behavior. But right. yeah, I, I, I love how, you know, they're, you know, they're looking into ways to achieve the same effect mm -hmm. without that, po you know, the possibility of, you know, you know, staring or, you know, something right. accidentally happening yeah. and, and all that stuff. And a lot of the, the ways they're finding to get those same effects are, are just good for everybody too. So mm. working on interoceptive awareness, bringing awareness to your body, um, knowing you know what makes your body feel different ways, and and finding you know whether it's running um, or yoga or watching a scary movie because this overlaps with my work on fear. If if mm -hmm. what you need, and as a, a I'm a big ruminator, um, you know, yeah. <laughs> anxiety, depression, as I say in the book, I've been on antidepressants since I was 15. Mm -hmm. My brain does not stop. <laughs> yeah, and, nope, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> and I found that I like doing scary things, whether it's thrill seeking and, you know, running around the woods or if it's roller coasters and haunted houses, because in those moments of intensity, when your body is pushed to the limit stress-wise, so you're physically exerting yourself, um, your mind does take a backseat. You're not thinking about all of that stuff because you have to focus on survival. You have to focus on the here mm. and now. And so learning how to get at that same mental state through other ways, um, I have found it does improve just quality of life in different areas too. You appreciate everything more when you feel more empowered over your emotions, over what you're feeling, mm. um, and over and being able to even know within yourself to predict, you know what, I, I think I, I can feel, yeah. you know, a depression coming on. I can, I can tell I'm on the path to a serious rumination. So if I act now, I know that I can try and get off that path. Um, so yeah. 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 Uh, you know, and, and just you mentioning that, like right there, I was getting all, I was getting all excited again, remember reading your book and I want, I need everybody to go buy it because like, oh, you talk about that. You talk about, you know, uh, like, uh, I think, I think it might've been like an endurance runner or something like yeah. that. And, mm -hmm. and yeah, and pushing through it. And I think that's how, you know, I originally built my pain tolerance because I didn't start abusing substances until after high school, but I always played sports and there's something about, you know, like when they talk about like that runner's high and stuff, and, yeah. and you guys do a good job in the book talking about like, you know, like pushing yourself without like, you know, killing yourself. Right, um, right. <laughs> and, and there's so many, you know, different aspects of, you know, the expectations and being mindful and aware of these things. So the last, the last question I have for you, Margie, and it's a weird question to end on, but I wanted to touch on it and we don't have yeah. much time. So I'm thinking of a fun way to phrase this because I wanted to, you guys talk a bit about like, uh, First, there's a there's a great story about a guy who struggled with depression mm -hmm. and, yeah. you know, and pain kind of helped him through that. It's very interesting. Um, yeah. But you guys also talk about, you know, like BDSM and maybe it's because I'm from Las Vegas and I know, you know, <laughs> I know people into that stuff. But here's how I'll phrase the question. Like when it comes to our brain and expectations and our need for control, what can, even though people think that BDSM people like have like some kind of weird, like, you know, mental illness, what can the average person learn from those people and how they utilize pain or even embrace it? Yeah. Oh, there's so much to learn, so yeah. much to learn. And, <laughs> um, and there's just recently a bunch of articles came out um, that are broad surveys of among people um, who say that they, they're, you know, 
practitioners of BDSM. And so much of the survey data, though, really depends on how these questions are asked, because mm. I guarantee that there you get a, well, it, I don't even have to guarantee research shows, you get very different answers. If you ask people a question like, um, you know, do you, do you like it a little rougher during sex sometimes? If that question appears among a whole bunch of different questions versus taking a, a survey that is focused on BDSM, like, do you consider yourself part of this community? Mm. You get very different answers because more people engage in a lot of the same types of activities, but they don't classify or identify yeah, as being in the BDSM community because it is it is a community. So you do have kind of the, you can talk about and study the community of BDSM and um, what their norms and values are. And then you can look at the ac activities and what's happening in the body, what's happening between two people. And I would say when we are talking about the body, um, for so for everybody, even if people don't want to identify with the community, when you're talking about uh, the body and pain in the context of a sexual relationship, there's so, it, there's, I don't even know where to start because there's the opportunity for bringing two people together in such an extreme place of vulnerability mm -hmm. that builds an incredible sense of bonding and closeness. And from the research and from interviews, um, you know, what I've learned is that when you, you know, when you basically are handing control over to someone else, but it's, you never relinquish complete control. So you're basically saying to this mm. person, I am letting um, myself be so vulnerable and I'm going to trust that you are going to, to take care of me, which ironically is, you know, through doing some slapping or, or whatever the, the flavor, um, takes on, it's a, a moment of extreme vulnerability between two people and yeah. you, it, these types of activities are also, um, really highlight how empathetic we are as, mm. as humans, because a lot of the enjoyment um, from the research, especially a lot of the research coming out of uh, the lab, uh, Brad Sigrin's lab, um, shows that, you know, a lot of the pleasure is coming from imagining what your partner is experiencing and vice versa. Mm. So you have this, you know, this interaction where you're really in each other's heads, you're in each other's bodies uh, in a very intense way. And the intensity is brought um, by the physical sensation. So you are, there's some great research looking at how you know, activating the the pain response system, basically all the endorphins and all of that, the dopamine um, can interact with our sexual arousal systems in ways that can elevate uh, the, the essentially the joy. I think of it, it's like mixing peanut butter and chocolate. It makes everything better. <laughs> um, but of course, context in all regards throughout the book, context is everything. It has to be under um, conditions where choice mm. and uh, agency are preserved. Um, once you take that out, then it's a different ballgame. Same with kids. You know, we have a whole section on how, um, you know, ex kids experiencing pain in pursuit of uh, their own, under their own motivation, you know, trying to jump to the next monkey bar or jump yeah. around rocks. Totally different, experienced different at every level um, compared to getting spanked, which is mm -hmm. processed, um, you know, and can lead to, to negative consequences. So um, same thing here in the context of choice and agency, uh, it can lead to, to these more intense experiences. And um, what else I think people can learn from the BDSM community is uh, to communicate openly and honestly. Um, so many people do not communicate about sex with their partner uh, because we are in the U.S. We are, even though, you know, we watch a ton of violence and we <laughs> yeah. watch a ton of sex too, we can't actually sit down and have an open conversation with our partner about what we like and don't like, um, what, you know, we want to try because there's still so much stigma and embarrassment and internalized shame just from mm -hmm. growing up in the U.S. <laughs> so um, so there's a lot to learn, I think, about body ownership, trust, uh, and, um, and communication.
Yeah. Yeah. No, ab- absolutely. And, and yeah, like uh, your, your boat it talks about just you know, our brains being these pr- prediction machines and expectations yeah. and, and to circle it back because if people haven't read Scream yet, they need to, but also it's kind of, it's that controlled fear that you talk about yeah. in, in Scream. So, you know, and, and that, that makes sense because uh, you know, um, although I, I haven't crossed any, any BDSM bridges after watching scary movies and, and I, you know, I get it and I have more fun doing it and, you know, watching my, uh, you know, with, with my girlfriend and stuff like that. Um, yeah. because I know, I know what's going on, yeah. but, but yeah, that, that controlled pain and kind of what you guys talk about in the book, it, it makes sense. So, so yeah, Margie, I, I, I love the book so much and I appreciate you coming Thank on you. For, for the second time. Second time Thank to talk. Yeah, that's a write more books, and we'll just make this a habit. But but yeah, yeah. Uh, the book is out now. So uh, for everybody who is fascinated by your work and your upcoming projects, where is the best place for people to find you and keep up to date with stuff? Um, definitely on my website, uh, margiekerr.com. M-A-R-G-E-E-K-E-R-R.com. It looks like Margeek. <laughs> but... Um, but yep, that's where they can find everything. Beautiful. All right. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. And, and yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Yeah, thank you. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Marie Kerr. And yeah, she's such a pleasure to talk to. I, I love her work. And, you know, there's so many books that I read that are on similar topics and everything. And what I love about Marty's research and, you know, uh, what she writes about, it's it's different. You know what I mean? And I, I love that. It's always, you know, something fresh, something different. And there's so much that you can learn by checking out the book and diving into it. So make sure you head down to the description, make sure you are following Marty and grab a copy of her book. Ouch. All right. But yeah, uh, other than that, down in the description, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. And if you are new and you're not yet, make sure you're following the podcast or subscribe to it on whatever platform you are listening on. And if you could be so kind, if you enjoyed this episode or any other episode, what really helps out a lot is if you share it on social media. All right. But some other ways to support the podcast uh, down in the description, you can head over to the rewiredsoul.com. I have written books um, about my addiction recovery, how I got addicted to not only alcohol, but prescription pain pills um, and how I recovered. Uh, I've also written some books on mental health, like anxiety, anger management, and hopefully I'll be, you know, uh, uh, talking about some more news around some upcoming book projects I'm working on and thinking of and all that. All right. But uh, there's also an affiliate link down below, which also helps support the podcast and it's for better help online therapy. So it is a service that I've personally used and it's affordable. It's online. And basically when you use my affiliate link for better help online therapy, some of it comes back to support the podcast and you get affordable therapy with a licensed therapist. It's win-win all around. All right. But yeah, Thank you so much for listening. And thanks again to Margie for returning to the podcast to talk about her book. And yeah, I hope you all have an amazing rest of your day. And I have another new episode for you tomorrow with another great author. So have a great rest of your day and I will see you next time.